Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. I'm so glad to be here and to be with the Vaughns again. I've known Adam's mom and dad a lot longer than I've known him, but uh, in the years that I've known him, I know that he's one of our very finest young preachers. And I'm always glad when our paths cross. So when I headed for your town yesterday, I was looking forward to being with him. And I'm looking forward to this week and to developing with you the theme, Things Most Surely Believed Among Us. You no doubt are aware of the fact that this is the way that Dr. Luke began his gospel record. He was going to set forth, he said, things most surely believed among us. That is a quotation from the King James Bible. It's worded a little differently in some other translations. But we're going to be looking at some basic fundamental things over these few days. And when I say basic and fundamental, I do not mean shallow, because the things we're going to talk about are some of the greatest facts that can enter into our minds. And I think that you probably are anticipating that from the standpoint that we're beginning this morning with the one true God of Scripture. And I'm going to be spending most of our time in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, if you want to turn there and In a little while, we'll look specifically at the text of Acts 17. When Adam told me the specific subjects that the elders of the church, and I'm sure with his uh, input, when he told me the specific subjects that um, they wanted me to develop this week, and that the first one had to do with the true God of Scripture, my mind went immediately to the Apostle Paul's sermon in the great first century city of Athens in Greece. Because in that sermon, he set forth as no other place in the New Testament the God who is the one true God. And I want to begin by saying that we do not know what the Apostle Paul looked like. But we do have an apocryphal writing from the second century that tells us something about his physical appearance. I don't know whether it's accurate or not, 
but I want to tell you what it is. That description says that he was short in height, bowed in leg, bowed in back, that he was bald of head. I kind of like that part about him. That his eyes were close together, his nose was hooked, and his eyebrows met in the middle of his forehead. Not much of a description for a man, would you think? But I do know this. I may not know for sure what he looked like. But I know that he bore in his body the scars of mistreatment because he served Christ. And the Corinthians said, they didn't think much of Paul, at least in the beginning. The Corinthians said in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10 we learn this, that Paul's bodily presence was weak and his speech was contemptible. Now, just think about that a moment. Suppose that Adam had gotten up a few weeks ago and announced that you're going to have a gospel meeting here, and the speaker that had been invited, bodily presence was weak and his speech was contemptible. That wouldn't attract many people, would it? May not attract many people at all, but my point is, that they didn't have a very high regard for him. And yet, this little Jew traveled 6,000 miles around the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and edifying the body of Christ. Next to Christ himself, he may be the most significant figure in all of church history. The apostle went on three missionary journeys. All three of them started in the same place, Antioch in Syria. It was the the first mission-minded church of the first century. We might have expected that church to have been Jerusalem, but it wasn't. From Antioch, he set out on these preaching tours. The first one took him into Asia Minor, which borders the Mediterranean Sea on the north. And he planted churches there, and after a time returned to Antioch. Then later, he set out on a second journey and visited the churches he'd planted in Asia Minor on the first journey and planned to go north, but God stopped him. And he didn't know what to do, and so as he waited for the direction of God, he went down to a seacoast town called Troas on the Aegean Sea and waited. And it was there that he had that vision in the night, the man of Macedonia saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And Luke says that straightway we made preparation to go into Europe. For the first time, the gospel was going to be preached on the continent of Europe. And when Paul went to Europe, he went 
first to Greece. Now, Greece was divided into two parts in those days. There was Macedonia in the north and Achaia in the south. He went to Macedonia and planted churches at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. But there were those who opposed his preaching and his work. They didn't want to believe that Jesus of Nazareth really was the long-awaited Messiah and that this crucified one was the Savior of the world. And so unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica especially stirred up people against Paul and not only did they force him out of Thessalonica, they even came down to Berea and opposed him there. And it was necessary that Paul leave. But he left his traveling companions, including Timothy, the young preacher, and Silas in Macedonia. And that brought him eventually to Achaia and to the chief city of all that part of the world. Now, with that as our background, I want us, first of all, in Acts chapter 17, to notice what took place when Paul came to Athens. So, we're going to begin with Paul's visit. And I'll stay close to the text, and if you want to follow along, that will be great. In Acts chapter 17. After he left Berea, beginning in verse 14, Luke says, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command from Silas for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So the first thing that we observe is that Paul came to this city and he's alone. I don't know how that may have affected him. But there he is. And I want us to notice some of the things that will eventually take place. The second thing I want to observe here near the beginning is the city of Athens itself. It was the glory not only of Greece, it was the glory of that part of the world. Now when Paul visited Athens in Greece... Much of the past great history of that city had spent its course. But when Paul came there, Athens was still the center of art and literature, religion, and philosophy of that day. It was a city of Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates. It was wholly given to idolatry. 
If one traveled to Athens today, one of the first things they would observe coming into the city is that hill where the Parthenon is located. It was dedicated to the chief goddess of Greece. There were those who said that it was the most spectacular building that had ever been built by man. I think that was no doubt an an overestimate of that gigantic place, but nonetheless, it was something magnificent. But when Paul came to Athens, he was not impressed by the Parthenon. He was not impressed by the history of the city. It didn't much matter to him that it was the center of so much of the culture. What really impressed him was that it was a city almost wholly given to idolatry. That temple built on the Acropolis was only representative of the temples that were scattered through the city to almost every false god that can be imagined. Chiefly, there was Zeus and there was Apollo and others. And Paul is by himself, and he must have felt the loneliness of it. And here's how Luke tells the story, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them, that is, Silas and Timothy, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. That word is not an especially good word as we use it. It really means angered. But when Luke says that Paul was provoked, he's not saying that he was angry out of control. But he uses a word that is used of God himself in the Septuagint version of the Hebrew Old Testament. You may be aware of the fact that the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Being written in Greek, we have many words there that are in the New Testament. And this word that Luke uses to describe Paul is used in the Old Testament Septuagint version to describe God. And it speaks of God's attitude toward those who would nullify His glory by turning to idol gods. And over and over again, we see that in the Old Testament as God's people forget Him and turn to false gods. So Paul was disturbed. He was jealous in a good sense for the honor of God. And so as he waited, he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, and this is what we would expect of Paul, therefore, whenever you find the word therefore in Scripture, 
stop and see what it's there for. It's always important, and it's important here. Paul is provoked in spirit. He, he is jealous for the honor of God. Therefore, he's going to do something. He's going to say something. Therefore, he reasoned. That simply means that he conversed, he discussed, even debated in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. When Paul went on his preaching journeys, when he went into a city that had a synagogue, and every city of the day that had ten Jewish men had a synagogue, so they were scattered everywhere. These places gathering for religious instruction. And Paul, in his mission, his mission aim or goal, was to go to the metropolitan areas, plant the church there, and then let the church, like when you sto- throw a stone in a pond, the, the ripples go out. And he went to the metropolitan areas. And the church was planted, and then those disciples would, would expand it in that area. So most of the places Paul went had a synagogue. And he went to the synagogues. He went to the synagogues because he himself was a Jew. He not only was a Jew, but he was recognized as a doctor of the law. Every Jewish boy studied Scripture in the synagogue from a young age. Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, went to the synagogue school. Every boy did. But his parents were not content with that. And so later they sent him to Jerusalem to study at the feet of Gamaliel, the great Jewish teacher. And he became skilled in all the ways of Judaism. When he went on his missionary journeys, he goes to the synagogue knowing that recognized as a rabbi, he would, know like, he would, he would likely be asked to speak. Now, in the synagogue service, there was always a reading from the law, the five books of Moses, and then the prophets. And when Paul was asked to speak, he would begin with the readings that had been chosen for that occasion and preach Christ. Many were won to Christ because Paul went to the synagogue. So mainly they were the Jews. But as Luke notices here, there were also Gentiles there. They were called the God-fearers. They They were not Jews. Some of them became proselytes, which meant they became Jews. But they were Gentile God-fearers that regularly came to those assemblies. They were people who believed that there was one God and that that one God was the God of Israel. And Luke says that Paul came to the synagogue and spoke to the Jews and to the Gentile worshipers. He had these discussions with them. And then, this is interesting to note, in the marketplace. The marketplace was called the Agora. 
And it was in the central part of Athens. And it was a gathering place. It was where people came to discuss philosophy and other ideas. It was a place where merchants sold their goods, where children played and thieves stole. It was a gathering place. Paul went to the gathering place. Seems natural, doesn't it? You go where people are. Now notice that he did not go to a building somewhere in Athens and erect a sign and say, y'all come. We want people to come, don't we? But he went where the people were. And incidentally, I might just say at this point that during the ministry of Christ, the gospel writers are careful to tell us that Jesus himself went to the marketplaces where the people were. Well, Paul comes to the place called the Agora, where all of this was going on. And notice that Luke says, in the marketplace daily, he went where they were every day. He was conversing with those who happened to be there. Now verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, we have looked at the city, we've looked at Paul, now let's look at the philosophers. If we accept Webster's definition of a philosopher, he says that it is those who search for knowledge and wisdom. Aristotle, one of the greatest of the philosophers of Athens, said that philosophy was the search for truth. Now, if, if we recognize those definitions, then there were three kinds of philosophies, at least, in Athens. First of all, there was the philosophy of the Jews, when Paul went to the synagogues, everybody there did not accept his message. Usually some did, but not everybody. Because the Jews' philosophy was that the long-awaited Messiah could never have been a person who was born where he was born, was raised where he was raised, who taught like he taught, and who finally died the disgraceful death of a Roman cross. And they rejected him. Their philosophy was, he is not the kind of Messiah we want. Therefore, we reject him. We look for another Messiah. And we believe that God will accept us as his people as he's done for 1,500 years. How wrong they were in all of that. One of the basic tenets of the New Testament is he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. God does not recognize anybody because of their bloodline any longer. Now we belong to Christ and belonging to Christ, we are the true Israel of God. Galatians 6.16 says the church is the Israel of God now. 
And we are the true descendants of Abraham. And they're no longer Jews or Gentiles. So the Jews' philosophy was dead wrong. This one they were rejecting is the Christ of God. Then second, Paul reasoned with the Epicureans. The Epicureans, as well as the Stoics, mentioned next, have been around for about 250 or 60 years when Paul was at Athens. And the Epicureans believed that the universe just happened. You ever heard of anybody like that? There's a big bang theory, you know, out there. It just happened that man is in the hands of fate, whatever will be, will be. When you die, it's over. Therefore, the Epicureans said, enjoy life, find pleasure in life. That philosophy, as it disintegrated, became Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Paul reasoned with the Epicureans. He's going to demonstrate that the world didn't just happen, that you're not in the hands of fate, and that death is not the end of it. So he's going to cut away at the very heart of the Epicurean philosophers. On the other hand, there were the Stoics. The Stoics mean believed many of the same things the Epicureans did, but they also saw God, and when they talked about God, they were not talking about the God of the Bible, they're talking about the gods of the Greeks. But when they thought of God, they thought of pantheism, that is, everything really is God. Paul is going to demonstrate that the God of heaven and earth, the God of the Old Testament Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only God. So, Paul met three philosophies at Athens. Jews, the Epicureans, and the Stoics. And he will destroy the foundation of of the beliefs of all of them. He manifested a great deal of courage, don't you think, in going to the very place where the people of the city gathered and there to say something that would contradict everything they believed. So coming back to the 17th chapter of Acts, Then certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? That word babbler means a seed picker. And the way they looked at him was that he was a vagabond who went from here to yonder, near and far, up bits of teaching from various people and then forming his own different philosophy out of that. They, were, they didn't have a very high regard for Paul. What does this babbler have to say? Others said, 
it seems, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Now, that's remarkable because every god you can imagine was already in Athens. And we're going to see that they took that even a step further than having temples to every god imaginable. But they said this is a proclaimer of false gods or foreign gods. Because, now notice these two reasons. Because he preached to them Jesus and resurrection. The Greek word for resurrection sounds like a female name. And so when they heard that name and Jesus... They reach the conclusion, Paul is here declaring foreign gods, one Jesus and a goddess. So they thought he was just bringing some other religion, much like what they already had at Athens. And so verse 19 says, they took him. Now when Luke says they took him, he uses a word to say that they did not say, sir, would you please join us? They took him. They seized him. The next word here emphasizes that. It says they took him and brought him. They laid hands on him. They arrested him. And they brought him to the specific place where trials were held and where discussions were conducted. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. It had a Roman name and it had a Greek name, both named for gods. The Roman god was Arius. And the Greek god translates into the King James Bible, Mars Hill. You may be more familiar with the name Mars Hill. They brought him to this place that would, it would serve as a judgment seat. So they brought him to the Areopagus and said, what may we know, what can we learn about this new doctrine of which you speak? For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And notice this telltale statement about the Athenians. Verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. You know, man doesn't change a whole lot, does he? Still today, there are people in the religious community, some new thing will be better. And regrettably, we have some in the church now that would like to see us change who we are because they believe that something else would be better. Well, the Athenians were that way. Therefore, Paul stood in the midst. Now, this is his sermon. 
And it unfolds in seven points. And I'll make those quickly. But it begins with Paul's introduction. He is not unkind to them. He wants to get their attention. So he says, as I passed by and observed the objects of your devotion, I perceive that you're very religious. I'm sure he had their attention. As I passed by, I even beheld an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. You see, they had altars to every God they could think of, and just in case they left somebody out, there was an altar to the unknown God, and that was Paul's point. This unknown God that you ignorantly worship, he's the one I'm going to declare to you. Now notice what he said about the one true God. Verse 24, God who made the world. Number one, God is the creator. The world did not just happen. The world was brought about by the creative act of God. God made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He's creator, but he's also the sustainer. He gives. He, He isn't primarily there to receive, but to give. And he gives to all what things are needed. He created the world. He sustains the world. Now, the the fourth point here, but the third thing he tells us about God, is that he is the sovereign God. He is the ruling God. He is the only God. Verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Now, he isn't saying here that God segregated people. But he is saying that God is involved in the world that he made. He is sovereign. And as Daniel put it in Daniel 4.32, the God of Scripture and the God of heaven and earth is the God who rules in the kingdoms of men. It doesn't matter who the ruler is or where he is. God can use that ruler, good or bad or indifferent. To accomplish his purposes. Because God is sovereign. He's the creator. He sustains. And he is the sovereign God. And verse 27 says. So that they should seek the Lord. In the hope that they might grope for him. And find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. This God. The God that Paul declares is not far away on some star. He is near. And he can be found. He wants to be found. We might say at this point that God, 
put a spark of deity in the human heart so that man naturally is religious. God wants to be the object of our worship. But we don't decide whether we're going to be religious or not. We are. And we may try to fulfill our religious nature by cramming life with all kinds of stuff. Solomon did that in the book of Ecclesiastes. But God put that in the human heart, and we must listen to it. This longing for God. It's like the psalmist said, the deer that pants for the water brook. He said, my soul pants for you, O God. Man is incurably religious. But God put that in our hearts. Second, God gave us the created world, and David said, The heavens declare the glory of God. God has given us His Word. We need to be listening. He isn't very far. We can seek Him and find Him. For in Him we live and we move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, we are the offspring of God. He quotes two Greek poets here. They were not saying that, they were not talking about the God of heaven. But Paul takes their words and applies them to what he's saying. And I have an idea when he said, like certain of your prophets, they are poets, they sat up and took notice. In verse 29, he introduces the fatherhood of God. Therefore, since we're the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. God made everything. He's not dependent on us. He doesn't need for us to build him a house in which to dwell. He dwells today in his house, the church. But he is, in this sense, the father of humanity because he's the progenitor. He's the origin of humanity. Verse 30, he's the judge. God has appointed a day, a specific day, in which He, God, will judge the world, that is, everyone. And the judge will be in representing deity, the one that we know as Jesus, the Son of God. And He has given assurance as to who Jesus is and what he will do by raising him from the dead. So man is headed for a judgment. And he's going to stand before the Christ that we either now are accepting or rejecting. And the last moment will be this. Their reaction. There were three reactions here. One is some mocked. Always have, I suppose, and always will. Some said, that's not for me. But when one says, that's not for me, they do so to their eternal detriment. Others said, we'll hear you more about this. That is, they were interested, but they delayed. There's more than one way to respond to the truth of God. You can reject it outright, or you can just off. 
I wouldn't be surprised if today in our assemblies there are people who know what is right, know what they ought to do, intend to do that sometime, but they're putting it off. And putting it off is to remain lost. And the third reaction was some believed and accepted the message. God commands, Paul said, all men everywhere to repent in light of judgment. And if one repents, that means sorrow toward God. So he must believe in God. If he believes in God, he believes what God says. God says he sent his son to be the Savior of the world. And to people who believe the message and who are called by the gospel to repentance will surrender to the will of God. And the people on the beginning day of the church surrendered to that will by being baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and God added them to his church, to his family, where we can worship and serve him now and then forevermore. It's the one true God, the God of Scripture, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ.